This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, marking the 20th anniversary of the IBM Center for the Business of Government's mission of connecting research to practice. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and the leadership fellow at the IBM Center. We meet our mission by engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. In celebration of our 20th anniversary, the IBM Center convened a panel discussion on envisioning what government operations might look like 20 years into the future. Each week, my goal is straightforward, to introduce you to key government executives and thought leaders who are tackling significant management challenges and seizing opportunities to lead. This show will offer insights and a vision of the future from contributors to our IBM Center book, Government for the Future, and panel participants, Daryl West, Holly Gilman, Lori Gordon, and Shelley Metzenbaum. Shelley Metzenbaum kicks off the panel discussing insights from The Future of Data and Analytics, an essay in the IBM Center book, Government for the Future, Reflection and Vision for Tomorrow's Leaders. How should federal, state, and local governments use and communicate data and analytics in the future to improve government performance across multiple dimensions, including impact, return on spending, fairness, interaction quality, trust and understanding. What needs to be done to get us from where we are to where we want to be? So we asked Shelley, where are we today and where are we going to be in 2040? So let me start with uh, where we want to be in 2040, if you will, because I think where we want to be in 2040 is where we want to be today, but we're not quite there today. And, and I'm just going to talk about this not in terms of the data, but what are we really trying to accomplish. And I'd say we want data and analytics to help us in a few ways. One is improving outcomes. Um, and improving outcomes both by reducing or solving problems and reducing risks, and um, basically by pursuing opportunities. Beyond that, we want the data and analytics to help us inform priority setting. Government, and when I say we, I mean government in this case, okay? But government working with people who the government's serving. Data and analytics needs to help us with priority setting. Shelley Metzenbaum elaborates. So in terms of, we also want data to help us and analytics to help us with priority setting. Government can't afford to do everything all the time. Where should they focus first? Where are the clusters of problems that are worse than other places that need attention or the opportunities? And then the third is you want data 
in addition to informing the choice of individuals and everything, is to actually help people understand what their government is doing and why and how well how they're doing it and how well, so that people trust government because we need government and we need it to work well. And if people don't trust it, they're not gonna resource it. So we're not gonna be able to do government. So what are we, where are we today in coming, bringing that vision alive? Well, the answer is we're all over the map. Um, you know, we basically have some folks like Noah who are putting data out all the time, doing amazing things and helping others do amazing things with data and analytics that help us on our daily decisions. We're all using that data all the time, even though we don't see the NOAA branding. But Metzenbaum identifies some missed opportunities. But I'll give you three short examples of really big missed opportunities. One, Water quality, drinking water quality, mm. okay? Citizen confidence reports. First of all, our drinking water suppliers are doing, using, collecting data every day, every day at the local level. Mm. We get, we're supposed to, citizen confidence reports as, in, as residents of communities that come in PDF forms. How does Flint, Michigan happen when we've been getting citizen confidence reports about our water quality for decades, okay? Second one, I'll give you Social Security. Mm-hmm. I had the joy of going to a Social Security office the other day. I, my spouse qual- qualifies me now for spousal benefits, and we both had to show up. And aside from the ba- basic fact that there wasn't a good checklist that told me what to bring to the office, there was this really long line of people all showing up at 9 o'clock, and I'm like, we've got an appointment. Do we have to go in that line? So I could go on to that Social Security office and look at what Google tells me in terms of time of day and day of week, they're the most crowded. That doesn't really help me, though, the way the government set it up for actually choosing that time, because I need to know by type of procedure I'm going through, what the wait times are, how much I should plan for, et cetera. That data all exists. It sits there when I'm in the Social Security office. They give it to me. Don't just give it to me there. Give it to me in advance so I can plan and be on that, make decisions. And a a third one that I'll just sort of point out to you in terms of problems is one that, since I'm talking to an office, this applies to federal, state, and local. We're seeing amazing things happen often at the city level. But I'm going to focus on the federal level because we're in D.C., Office of Personnel Management. Okay, retirement benefits or time to hire We've got all the data. It's sitting there. OPM actually puts the data out on retirement benefits and the backlog, including how long you have to wait for benefits, but it's not analyzed in a way or even picked up by journalists in a way that anybody can use. And we could also be doing comparisons about time to hire or retention rates, turnover rates by profession comparing across programs. We don't do it. So my vision is that we've got this world that uses the data that we have or that we go out and get in much smarter ways to make better decisions and that we communicate it so people can make those decisions and they understand the way it's communicated. Making better decisions may require a different way of operating and new structures. Perhaps by 2040, the federal government will disband its traditional agency structure and establish network teams to perform government work. 
these teams crowdsource the priority topics or challenges of the moment, then bring cross-disciplinary talent, research, and ideas to develop solutions that they tailor to each individual citizen. This is what Lori Gordon says in her essay, Networked Government, Managing Data, Knowledge, and Services, in the IBM Center book, Government for the Future, Reflection and Vision for Tomorrow's Leaders. Well, I think Donald Kettle did a really good job describing it um, with Brookings, but I have a slightly different take, I guess, and so my perspective is just, is very simple. It's the interchange and exchange of data, systems, and technology. And do we do this today well? Not as well as we could. You know, we're often individually thinking about our own data, um, you know, each agency has its own processes, congressional requirements, you know, funding limits. We use bespoke or COTS technology, so we're very specific in how we're thinking about that data. But I will say that CBG has been thinking about this since the 1990s and 2000s. But it's not all bad news for Lori Gordon. She continues. One thing that I, I feel like the good news uh, that the idea of network government has been moving forward because we're advancing personal technology, social media. And as we do this, as employees and staff of these federal agencies, we're sort of you know, um, pressing forward and asking this from our agencies. So um, I'm really focused on data. How do you aggregate the data? How do you process it, analyze it? And how do you tailor that data to individual citizens? And so I would say in a nutshell, in 2040, we will be doing that very thing. We'll be, we'll be tailoring data to the individual citizen. Um, and just to comment on some of the, in the book, I mean, we started, you know, Baltimore City Stat in 2003, you know, decades ago, collecting and aggregating data to use it for, you know, citizens um, and improve public service. And today, GSA um, has its ECTO office where they're looking at emerging technologies, AI, IoT, um, robotics process automation. So all those things, virtual reality. How are we aggregating that data through those, those different technologies? So we're seeing government network more around this advanced technology so that we can really analyze it and produce better insights. But what we aren't seeing is how to restructure the government itself around this. You know, we're still working from this hierarchical structure, but a more decentralized arrangement would probably um, enhance your ability to gather that data, especially, you know, in sensors, networks. Smart cities are doing a great job. Cities are doing a great job um, to aggregate this for public works um, quality of life. But hopefully we can, you know, transfer this to the federal level as well. Better insights can lead to better decision making, which in the end can help government leaders more effectively engage and better serve its citizens. The longer-term future presents an opportunity to set up institutionalized structures for engagement across local, state, and federal levels of government, creating a civic layer. Its precise form will evolve, but the basic concept is to establish a centralized interface within a community to engage residents in governance decision-making that interweaves digital and in-person engagement. This is the perspective of Holly Gilman, author of the Future of Civic Engagement essay in the IBM Center book, The Future of Government. Gilman elaborates. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you to Dan and John and Mark and to Ruth. And it's really a wonderful event. It's nice to see so many colleagues in the audience, including a bunch of the colleagues from the Beck Center. So this is fabulous. Um, so I think, you know, it's, I'm glad to be coming after these two comments because I think I can piggyback nicely off of what Shelley and Lori have been saying. When I talk about civic engagement in the future, I think about the current 
crisis we have where people do not trust their government and there really is a legitimacy crisis and you're seeing it across democracies, you're seeing it globally. And one of the trends that's really interesting is that when you ask people in the United States on the local level, they have much more trust in their local and city government. And so I think that offers an opportunity to think about the institutional structures that we could build to tap into that energy excitement and the experimentation happening on the local level, but to think about how you could scale it. Because right now, a lot of these initiatives suffer from being ad hoc or being limited or having transitions in political leadership. How can we build what Gilman calls the civic layer? In the book, I talk about how we could build something that I've been calling a civic layer, thinking about how do you institutionalize these mechanisms so that you can think about a federated structure. So you're tapping into that expertise on the local level, but you're providing some structure around it. And I'll give you three examples of how this could potentially play out in practice. And so the first, you know, building off, building off of Shelley's comments, is thinking about how you release data. So it's not just enough to make that data open, but to think about how you really equipped citizens on the ground with that information. And a great example are the user testing groups that are happening around the country. Started in Chicago, now Miami is doing them, so is Boston. And this is where city officials work directly with residents, many of whom have no tech literacy training, to ask them, what is the information that you would want for us to release? And people are compensated for their time. And it also shows people leaving City Hall to actually go out into communities and talk to people, in particular marginalized communities who are not usually in this policy process. And then a second way is how governments themselves can leverage this data for more innovative policy outcomes. So a great example of this is New York's Office of Public Engagement. It's the first unit of its kind in the country, and they've been leveraging data, thinking about what are the benefits that people are eligible for. And they actually go door to door, and they say, you know, I'm from the city government. You're eligible for these public benefits. I'm going to make a, an appointment for you and I'm going to follow up with you to make sure you have what you need for that appointment, to make sure you're not waiting in line at the Social Security Administrative Office, and to make sure that you're able to actually secure those benefits. For Holly Gilman, there are more opportunities around collaborative and participatory policymaking. And then finally, I think there's a lot more opportunities around collaborative and participatory policymaking. And this is not to necessarily replace representative democracy, but to think about how you could augment and create more participatory opportunities for people on their day-to-day -day governance. And we've seen some really promising models of this on the local level, whether it's things like participatory budgeting, where you're giving people a portion of public monies and allowing them to allocate them. Them, or models like the citizen jury, where you take a representative sampling of people and you give them information so that they can take that information in an accessible way back to the community. So these are just some of the examples, but I think the civic engagement of the future needs to really think about how you build those institutional supports and then how you leverage advances in technology while also tapping into people's local level expertise. Advances in technology 
using data and analytics can transform how government engages its citizens. All of these trends can also change the nature of how work is done. It can change the very nature of work. Flatter, more open, and more collaborative organizations reduce the number of mid-level managers, empower frontline bureaucrats, and give upper echelons the tools to hold service providers accountable for their actions. This approach makes it possible to operate a lean team that still delivers on key objectives. Temporary workers are used when specialized skills are needed for specific tasks. This is the perspective Daryl West outlines in his essay, The Future of Work, for the IBM Center book on the future of government. Well, thank you, uh, Mark. And if you really enjoy getting email, I can sign you up for some e-marketing services. <laughs> so we can really uh, satisfy that. Uh, I do want to uh, congratulate the IBM Center for their 20th anniversary. It's a terrific achievement. Uh, the organization has done great work over the years. Uh, it's amazing that there are 350 reports and 23 books uh, that have uh, come out. So uh, congratulations to Mark and Dan and Jonathan and John for all the uh, terrific uh, work there. Uh, so in terms of uh, where the government is now and where it needs to go, in general, I'm an optimist uh, in the sense that we can see a lot of technology innovation already taking uh, place, in the, especially in the federal government through remote work, cloud storage facilities, the use of mobile solutions, and so on. But clearly, there's a lot more work that needs to uh, get done. Uh, and so. I hope that by 2040, uh, many of the things that I talk about in my uh, future work uh, book actually do come to fruition. And our opening speaker talked about the importance of challenging the status quo, and I think we really need to do that, especially in the federal government. There are all sorts of amazing technologies that we're seeing in the private sector, AI, machine learning, robotics, so the use of data, the Internet of Things, uh, virtual reality, the use of sensors. Government agencies are starting to use these things, but clearly have a lot of progress that needs to be undertaken. Wes sees value in artificial intelligence, AI, and a greater use of data analytics. He elaborates. For example, one thing that I hope uh, the federal uh, government is able to uh, deploy over the next uh, two decades is artificial intelligence and greater use of uh, data analytics. Because we know uh, that AI uh, uh, can improve decision making by uh, basically analyzing data in real time and uh, providing high quality and uh, fast uh, feedback uh, to people. Uh, the federal government sits on a gold mine of information, but uh, only minds a small uh, fraction of that. And so I hope that uh, it can integrate information from a variety of different sources, uh, analyze the material, and then help officials to uh, make decisions based on up-to-date information as opposed to information that may be 6, 12, or 18 uh, months uh, behind. And uh, Shelley noted uh, the importance of uh, data in terms of information the government already has uh, but doesn't uh, use in terms of uh, like hiring decisions, retention information, and retirement. Uh, so clearly uh, there can be AI solutions that could help uh, there. Uh, Lori was talking about uh, networked uh, government and uh, kind of the exchange of information information uh, to improve uh, the way the public sector uh, functions. So I think there are many ways in which uh, AI uh, can help. A few months ago, I gave a talk to the federal CIO uh, council about artificial intelligence. And 
Most of the CIOs uh, across the federal government want to do more on technology innovation. Uh, they want to embrace AI, but they admit uh, the federal government is far behind. So this is an area where uh, clearly there needs to be uh, a lot of progress made. Daryl West, author of The Future of Government, is even more optimistic. Second uh, thing uh, where I'm uh, reasonably optimistic is I think there will be greater use of personal digital assistance. Like we're seeing this in the consumer market uh, with Apple's Siri, uh, Amazon's Alexa, and so on. Like these are devices that can help people find information, answer basic questions, and even perform common uh, tasks like ordering uh, takeout uh, food. I think these are the types of devices that can be adapted for government agencies as well and help workers find the information, uh, answer basic questions. I'm sure all the agencies, especially the personal offices, get a lot of questions over and over again. Uh, there are chat bots that can help answer uh, those uh, questions. And as opposed to having to fill out paperwork or submit forms or uh, engage in activities that take a lot of time, uh, there are electronic and digital uh, uh, solutions that I think can expedite uh, the process. Uh, the Atlantic uh, recently uh, put out a report saying that by 2021, there actually are going to be more personal digital assistants around the world than human beings, which is a pretty startling number. Uh, by 2021, I think we're gonna be around 7.5 billion humans. So that means there are gonna be 7.5 billion personal digital assistants. The federal government uh, should uh, embrace that and start to uh, uh, think about uh, things. So I think there are lots of ways in which if we kind of envision uh, the federal government and the future uh, workforce by 2040, where we can make progress, uh, incorporate uh, some of the new technologies, and hopefully help to address uh, accountability, representation, uh, and help to restore public confidence in government. How can we realize our panelists' vision of government in 2040? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business, so join them each week on the Business of Government Hour and find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on the Federal News Network. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms 
can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, marking the 20th anniversary of the IBM Center for the Business of Government's mission of connecting research to practice. Today, I share insights from a panel discussion featuring visionary thought leaders hosted by the IBM Center. In the previous segment, Daryl West outlined his vision of the future of work. Holly Gilman discussed the future of civic engagement. Lori Gordon painted a portrait of networked government as a different way of managing data, knowledge, and services. And Shelley Metzenbaum began the panel putting a finer point on the importance of data and analytics in the future of government. In this segment, we move from vision to how to achieve that vision. What do government leaders need to do specifically, starting tomorrow, to get where they want to be? How optimistic is the road ahead, and what needs to be done? Daryl West, author of the essay, The Future of Work, shares his insights. I think the key thing on technology innovation is it's not just about the technology. Like at Brookings, we do a lot of work at, at kind of evaluating how effective uh, private organizations as well as uh, public organizations are at incorporating new uh, technology. The, the biggest mistake most government agencies make is just to bring in new technology and they don't change anything else. Uh, I think Lori uh, pointed out that we need to also think about changing the organization of government and that I would add we need to change the culture of government. I think when you look and examples of successful technology uh, innovation, either in the public sector or the private sector, the examples of where it has worked the best is when there's new technology, organizational restructuring to take advantage of the new technology, and then changes in the culture so that people actually embrace that new technology and use it effectively. If you don't have each of those three ingredients, oftentimes uh, the innovation is going to fail. So when you think about organizational changes within the federal government, we're going to need flatter organizations and more collaborative organizations. We need organizations where the flow of information is two-way. It's not just hierarchical from the leadership uh, down uh, to the employees. Uh, the employees, uh, either at the very bottom of the organization or in the middle of the organization, they have experiences uh, that can inform uh, what goes on in that uh, agency. It's kind of an updated version of the old suggestion box, uh, but put in electronic form so that there are easy ways for people at the top of the organization not just to put out information but to get a feedback on what works. So I think those are the types of things. Holly Gilman, author of the essay The Future of Civic Engagement, can identify pockets of innovation right now in civic engagement. But what needs to happen to spread these kinds of individual pockets of innovation? 
Gilman elaborates. I think on a meta level, when we engage people, we need to actually be engaging them in a genuine capacity. And there needs to be a sense that people are having some autonomy or agency and there's some sort of accountability or feedback loop. And I think that is a challenge when sometimes, you know, the government does public engagement. And there's a lot of reasons to be concerned about it. Fear of opening the floodgates, fear of what I call going into a restaurant and only looking for the rats, concern that you're not going to be able to, on the back end, implement whatever kind of input that you get and a lack of process investment so that you're asking people things that maybe they're not the right experts on. So I'm not going to be up here and say we need to crowdsource nuclear policy, for example, <laughs> right? That's not the kind of thing that I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is creating institutionalized structures that tap into people's expertise, often in their community, but being realistic with having rules of the road that are transparent, which might mean saying, we don't, we're not going to take all of your input and turn it into actionable outcomes all the time. But sometimes there's a reluctance in the public sector to even manage those outcomes. So I think we have to be much more forthcoming and more realistic with people because they understand when their time is not being used wisely. And, you know, one of the threads that I'm hearing from this conversation today is when we think about data and the amount of data that individuals are generating that's being collected on them by public sector and private sector companies, that maybe is a way that we could think about an federated structure of scaling participation if we could create genuine opportunities and mechanisms to empower people to feel like they have more agency over this information and how it's collected and how it's going to be used. You know, that's just an example of something that I think will really resonate with the public, because I think you're right. There is a challenge of scale. And until we get to a place where we have greater institutionalization of engagement, the kind of catalytic dollars that you know, social sector or philanthropic organizations are able to do are very powerful. And you're seeing that in the form of fellowships in local government, in the form of small pilots, in the form of challenges, but that are sort of smaller dollars because the external actors can move a little bit more quickly and then show those kind of early wins that I think can ultimately create the kind of political air cover to move this along so that the government can say, we understand the necessity, we understand that we're not only going to be opening ourselves up to excessive risk, and then we can start making larger, more strategic process investments, just to bring it full circle to what I was first saying, when you don't really invest in the process, neither of the parties feel like it's been a good use of their time, and then people are going to be even more reluctant to more deeply engage the public. Lori Gordon, author of the essay, Network Government Managing Data, Knowledge, and Services, identifies three kinds of jobs in the future. She offers her vision for these types of jobs and how we get there. So here's sort of the vision that I see um, for network government. By 2040, government will have realized that technology is the lever to understanding the constitu constituency, that society's allegiance to bytes is the means through which government can connect to um, its constituency. And so that the advances in technology will enable the government to, to better aggregate data, but to better um, gain you know, more insights and analyze that 
to lay out a compelling picture of everything from how we should, um, you know, what risks society should take um, to what it chooses to buy. And then, so for the first time, government will be taking sort of a first order look um, at how its policies, governance, and structure can be really informed by um, someone, you know, flipping a switch. You know, how will we design our future transport hubs based on um, relevant data? So the government will reshape its infrastructure, its distribution of responsibilities, uh, and technology investment to more directly engage the American public. And so it's going to be, the structure will be less focused on the institution uh, and more on uh, communities of interest and this redistribution of responsibilities. So now I'm going to talk about those three. And essentially, the three jobs are um, going to be reorganized around the data lifecycle and decision-making around that. So basically, anyone who has a role in aggregating, analyzing, you know, integrating data is focused on them. So basically, it will require a data management function, which is crowdsourcing citizen input um, and aggregating that data. And then the knowledge integration management function is sort of taking a cross-discipline approach to analyzing that data. And then the customized services management function, which tailors programs to um, individuals' needs. So for the data management function, this is really this crowdsourcing. It will require reaching into the technology and scientific communities to better understand emerging technology, such as virtual reality, IoT, AI, and how we can aggregate, analyze unstructured and structured data to better amass even larger amounts of it. We need to reimagine and reorganize data sensing and feedback loops so that the government can gain rich insights um, from citizens to inform knowledge-driven decisions. And we need to understand how to um, develop crowdsourcing mechanisms to elicit um, better participation in policy and acquisition processes creating data lakes and things like that. So there will be um, active crowdsourcing where the government will push surveys to people through social media, passive crowdsourcing, which we see in um, smart cities, uh, sensors, um, IoT around town, and then the knowledge integration management function. So this is essentially taking a cross-discipline approach to analyzing data. And so we really want to make sure that we're um, in involving cross-discipline communities to investigate um, ever-evolving citizen needs. And once we're crowdsourcing the data, this will really um, trigger government processes to move in different ways, uh, resources, and develop responsive solutions. So the customized services uh, management function, this is really tailoring programs to citizens' needs. It's really we're seeking tech-enabled feedback um, mechanisms to understand constituents' changing values. We, we need to make sure that we're understanding the privacy and security implications of aggregating this data, so that will be a focus as well. Um, and so then once we have this data, then we're going to be providing solutions tailored to the relevant community of interest. We also want to involve um, the public in how they're designing their solutions around their data. So it could be um, you know, more 4D printing, um, creating objects that reshape themselves and self-assemble over time. Shelley Metzenbaum, author of The Future of Data and Analytics, offers advice on what government leaders should do tomorrow to get to their vision of 2040. Let me identify four things I talk about in the chapter. Okay. Um, first one is fuel the front line. Fuel as in gas, right? Give it gas. So way too much of what we do with data is gathering data from the field and bringing it into the central office and going beyond just bringing it in for feedback, mm -hmm. but actually getting it back out. So yeah. I always like to say, 
you know, return data to the data suppliers with value added through analysis. You'll be surprised at how much the quality of the data improves. But if you think about the teachers and how we give them the data right now, they get measured and they get worried that they're right. going to get penalized. But who's helping them find the positive outliers yep. for the demographic group that they're teaching so that they can say, oh, let me try and do that. Yeah. Whether it's data or it's research, we aren't very good at whether it's public works folks or teachers or um, social workers. How do we fuel the front line? Think about the UPS driver coming to your house who's sitting there with this little handheld PDA that tells them a whole lot of stuff, right? We don't do that very much. Annie E. Casey has done some really interesting stuff trying to work with the social workers in Indiana to make this work. So fuel the front line. And I would add to that what Holly was talking about, which is an awful lot of what government does you can engage others in being part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And if we actually learn how to use data to fuel not only the front line, but others who can be part of improving outcomes, making the world work better. Second thing is outcomes. And I say outcome obsession, right? The government needs to be outcomes obsessed, which what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, you've got to focus on mission. And I will take from the um, Margaret Weikert will probably talk about this later. Um, mission, service, and uh, stewardship, fiscal stewardship. I know there's some people in the audience who are going, oh my God, I can't believe Shelley's saying that. <laughs> um, really short, sweet, to the point. Outcome indicators, multiple dimensions of outcomes. So it is mission. Are you making progress on what you're trying to do? Which means you have to be clear about what it is you're trying to advance, right? Whether it is safe drinking water or it is, um, you know, reducing risks from, uh, you know, extreme weather events or it is helping kids, kids thrive in life, you've got to be clear about it and figure out the, what the measurements are that are going to help you know that. You also need to think about process efficiency. Mm -hmm. You know, if your benefits processing is going really slow because, you know, you, you're, you're not paying attention, things are in the, in the queue, the wait queue a long time, people are going to get frustrated. But also, if you're not looking at the data, you're going to miss opportunities to improve. There's service quality. You know, that's something that matters. If you have bad experiences with government, you're going to get mad at government more generally. And usually it is a very limited number of places where we actually have direct, highly recognized experiences with government. So service quality should be incredibly important. Fairness, we have to have people feel that they're being treated fairly relative to others. You know, and then, of course, there's the cost issue is that, hey, are we asking, OK, to achieve this, is there a better way to do the same or more with less money? Mm -hmm. So outcomes obsession on the multiple dimensions of outcomes, visualization and communication. If we got data and we got analyses and we got research findings and nobody knows about them or can't understand <laughs> them, can't inter interpret mm -hmm. them, what are we going to do? So, you know, I'd urge you to sort of Think about, OK, who needs to use the data? Who needs the analysis? Where do they need it? When do they need it? How do they need it? How do I get it to them in a timely way so they can access it, so they know it's available, et cetera? So thinking more about visualization and communication, absolutely critical. And then finally, 
I think there's some low-hanging fruit. Most of what government does is good stuff you want to have grow and bad stuff you want to slow. And on the bad stuff, an awful lot of that is incidents, bad incidents, harmful incidents, whether it's the traffic fatalities, you know, a plane crash, a fire, whatever. We actually have a lot of expertise about doing this sort of mission-related risk management, but we're not as good as that as we can, and we're not doing enough of it where we're learning across agencies and actually building intelligence kind of platforms that help us do that. So I think those are four huge opportunities. I want to pick up on Lori's question and get this whole group of thinkers here thinking about how do you actually make this happen? What is the institutional, you know, what are the organizational in this hierarchical gov governments that exist, how do you make them agile, both in terms of use of data, use of resources? So just take two things I've brought up. One is the clean, the clean drinking water, safe drinking water, and Social Security Administration, and ask yourselves, how should we be organizing government to deliver on that? How do we make it agile? We don't necessarily need to change the existing organizational structures, but we got to figure out how to make them more agile or we have to change them. But again, looking at Social Security, it's like, think about how Amazon changes its computer systems. It's got people in-house who are constantly doing agile improvements. Do we have to contract that out in government to get good people helping us with that? Not easy questions to answer, so I think we need to figure that out. Lori Gordon says realizing the future can be enhanced by using foresight exercises. I think it all comes down to um, doing these foresight exercises to say, really, what should we envision in the future and what knowledge do we need to be accumulating right now to be able to get there? And that's even, you know, what does the structure of government look like? We're already seeing that technology is being, um, you know, decentralized. Everyone has, you know, a, a smartphone mm -hmm. or something like this. So we're becoming smarter in the ways we want to access and use data. And so I think it's, you know, really thinking longer term to um, make decisions now. Holly Gilman outlines two related concerns that facilitate or abrogate realizing one's vision of the future. I think there's two related concerns. So we are seeing a lot of IoT devices and sensors popping up. And you're seeing cities actually using these devices to change how they're doing public service delivery. So, you know, Boston is really advanced and thinking about using these devices. So actually when you're in your car on your phone, it can report when you're hitting a speed bump or a pothole and then send that back to City Hall. And one thing that concerns me about that is that citizens then don't know what's happening. They don't understand on the back end that there are real people in government agencies who are then doing work for them. So I think we want to just caution about this sort of invisible effect because, you know, you know, as Shelley was saying, there are a lot of hardworking people in government who are doing a lot of great services. And so the blending, just bringing it full circle to Don Kettle, when you think about this interweaving of the public and the private sector and the blending of these spheres, part of the crisis of legitimacy is that people don't know what's public and they don't know what role government is playing. And so if we're only constantly getting, you know, kind of passive survey information, right, government is not Amazon by design. We're not just giving you a product to your door. And so it, it, the, the kind of the, the rating system, I think it's, it's a component, 
But I would just caution us about overly relying on it because it creates this analogy with the commercial sector that I don't think is totally adequate because the public sector can do things or operate at a loss or think about vulnerable communities or invest in public works projects or you know think about a any sort of collective action dilemma that is very different from the private sector. So that's sort of my only caution against that. Is there anything of note happening in the federal government right now that places it on the right course to realize the vision of the future of government? Daryl West thinks so. The more technically oriented agencies actually are doing a, a good job. So uh, Shella gave the example of NOAA and just all yeah. the weather uh, information uh, that we have that you know, commercial uh, stations that use uh, all the time. Uh, NASA has done an amazing uh, job uh, in terms of cloud storage uh, facilities. Like their workforce is distributed all around the world. The data collection is uh, global in nature. They have devised a technology infrastructure that makes use of that. And, you know, when you think about scientific discoveries over the last two decades. I mean, it's amazing uh, what is coming out of it. But I can also give you an example of an agency that's doing a terrible job of this, which is uh, DC city government. So for example, I live in the U Street area and we have a rat problem. Uh, not the human kind, but the four-legged uh, variety. <laughs> so I noticed a few years ago when I started to notice all these rats uh, in the alley behind our place that DC city government had created new electronic uh, ways to report problems uh, online, uh, uh, 911 and 311. So of course, I took advantage of these digital resources to report the problem. In three years, I've never heard any response. I've never seen any improvement in terms of uh, the problem uh, at hand. And so it's an example of where an agency is taking the first step right. of creating a mechanism for feedback, but not altering its structure or culture in a way that actually takes advantage of that information or acts on that information. And if anything, that's an example of how technology actually increases citizen cynicism. Because you know, when you create these mechanisms and when people start using it, you expect something's going to happen. And then when nothing happens, it's like, oh my God, well, government is ineffective. It doesn't work. It's not responsive to my concerns. It actually makes the problem worse. So that's an example we need to avoid. Shelley Matzenbaum piggybacks on this perspective about agencies and their efforts making a difference. Health and Human Services has done a pretty good strategy map on opioid abuse reduction, where they talk about the relevant evidence and the different strategies they're using within HHS. It doesn't go across the whole federal government, which is unfortunate. But you look at it and you go, well, how do we get people at the local level who could use this to actually know about it? And I think that's the challenge because, and that's a really big challenge because it's federal, state, local. How do you manage that? But we're at this time right now with artificial intelligence, with data, with visualization that makes this possible, but we're going to need new skill sets and we're going to need to retrain people and we're going to need to open up an agility within the workforce to be able to move to teams and to move money with those teams to deal with real problems. Daryl West on his essay, The Future of Work, focuses on the impact of artificial intelligence on the nature of work. He identifies five things that both the private sector and the federal sector have to do. 
Certainly there are many opportunities for AI, but there are a lot of uh, concerns about it as well in terms of the societal uh, impact, uh, the ethical uh, nature or perhaps lack of uh, ethical aspects. So at Brookings, we have uh, launched a new AI initiative to kind of look at both the usage side, but also the problems are associated with it. And so we put out a report that Mark just uh, referenced. And, you know, since you love these emails, we're going to keep sending you stuff. Uh, and what we did was, uh, it was a report uh, kind of looking at what companies can do. Because obviously the tech companies are the big innovators with uh, AI. It's not likely there's going to be national legislation on uh, this anytime soon. So in the short run, our hope as a society is that the companies start to incorporate ethics more in their AI decisions. So, for example, we uh, suggested that companies hire ethicists just so uh, there are people within the company who can weigh in on differing applications, different use cases, uh, and make sure that ethical considerations are incorporated, that companies should develop a code of ethics that lays out their principles, processes, and ways of handling the ethical aspects of AI development. Uh, we suggest the development of AI review boards that can basically look at the decisions that are being made and make sure that they're uh, meeting uh, general societal uh, values, that there be AI audit trails. So obviously, most AI software involves millions of lines of code. So you can't really go into the code and analyze what choices were made and, you know, do they, did the programmers make uh, the right ethical uh, uh, decisions or whatever. But software developers can annotate their software and basically explain the choices they made at different stages of the software development and that that can create an audit trail so if there's any problem or controversy about that AI or if the AI ends up producing some negative consequence of some sort, we can go back and recreate the kinds of decisions that uh, went into uh, that uh, software. In August, we actually did a public opinion survey testing these various ideas. There was strong majority support for every one of these ideas. Uh, some of them, like a code of ethics and an, and an uh, AI review board, had up to 67% of uh, the general public uh, supporting them. Daryl West closes his participation on the panel on an optimistic note. Uh, I'm a long-term optimist in the sense that I just think the status quo is indefensible. I think when you look historically, whenever things are bad, and I think all of us would admit that there are things in government that are currently uh, bad just in terms of uh, poor uh, governance, uh, lack of proper procedures, uh, limited innovation uh, within the uh, public sector, I just don't think that's a status quo that can last another uh, 20 years. And so I think when you look at organizations change, typically when things are bad, that actually is when change becomes possible. And I think change is going to be necessary because the pace of technology innovation is really going to accelerate over the next 20 years. Shelley Metzenbaum also offers an optimistic view on the future of government. So I think there's enormous will within the federal government, state governments, local governments. Um, I think change is a little easier at the state and local level. I think um, it's especially hard at the federal level because there are all sorts of drivers that protect the status quo. 
and very few drivers that encourage constructive change. So whether it is the fact that there's no comp real competition like you have in the private sector that's gonna change it, the fact that both the media and the political system have a bias to the negative, and the evidence on this is incredibly both the negative and the sensational, the fact that you have in place a whole bunch of risk management systems that, like I said, the IGs and the even the grant oversight mechanisms, et cetera, that make it easier to focus on compliance rather than wish and improvement. So there's, a, there's about five, six, seven, eight barriers to change that are hard to change. And so you got to hope that the will to change both from within government and outside government as well as the technology and opportunity and the models, but again, and I think, you know, this, the organizational structures make it really difficult, but I'm an optimist. The panel discussion highlighted in this special edition of the Business of Government Hour offers insights from four visionaries on the future of government in 2040. In the last two decades, the IBM Center has led the charge of connecting research with practice and advancing public management scholarship, all while providing leaders with practical insights and actual recommendations on how to enhance the way government does its business. Since its inception, the center has complemented its rigorous public management research by offering government executives a platform for telling their leadership stories on this weekly interview program, The Business of Government Hour. These conversations inform the center's research agenda, as well as enabling us to get that research to those in the front line of public service. Leadership is at the core of the center's mission. Successful leadership is a measure of how we respond to uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, the unknown. By this definition, the center continues to respond, making the unknown knowable and the untried mainstream in public management. Thank you for joining me on the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, commemorating the 20th anniversary of the center's mission of connecting research to practice and convening a panel of visionaries reflecting on the future of government. Thank you for joining me on the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, commemorating the 20th anniversary of the IBM Center's mission of connecting research to practice. Before we go, I'd like to invite you to pick up a copy of the latest IBM Center book commemorating our 20th anniversary, Government for the Future, Reflection and Vision for Tomorrow's Leaders. At any given moment in time, governments in the United States and around the globe carry out key missions in service of their citizens, learn from and engage with partners in other sectors, and act as cost-effective stewards of public resources. The countless positive daily actions of government leaders go largely unrecognized amidst the constant focus on the highly visible but far smaller set of challenges and problems faced by the public sector. However, stepping back to view progress over a span of decades reveals evidence of the sum total of this continuous evolution in government management, as well as providing perspective on the future of public service. It is from this long-term perspective about the performance and potential for government that the IBM Center for the Business of Government wrote, Government for the Future, Reflection and Vision for Tomorrow's Leaders. In this book, we draw from a rich repository of content to reflect on the major drivers of public sector progress over the past two decades. More importantly, Reflections on this content provides a foundation to paint a vision of what government management may look like 20 years hence. We have built on this foundation to bring together a set of viewpoints about the public sector in 2040 through a set of collaborative brainstorming sessions 
and a crowdsourcing of ideas about future scenarios. This vision of tomorrow's government is framed through essays from experts that lay out a roadmap for how to maximize benefits and minimize risks. With potential innovations ranging from workplace of the future to advancement of space exploration, the IBM Center has been privileged to contribute cutting-edge research that led to practical, actionable recommendations for government executives during the last 20 years and to have collaborated with like-minded organizations to improve government performance. With the book Government for the Future, we look to continue this collaboration among government, academic, nonprofits, and industry through the next 20 years. With our objective of creating a future vision of government by reflecting on the past, Government for the Future consists of two parts. The initial chapters examine six significant and enduring management trends identified over the past 20 years, such as digital, using data, performance, social media, collaboration, and risks. The second part of the book looks 20 years into the future. It is my hope that this primer will pique your intellectual curiosity and that you will find value in the insights, lessons learned, best practices, and vision of the future offered in this magnum opus that marks 20 years of connecting research to practice. Government for the Future, Reflection and Vision for Tomorrow's Leaders. Be sure to pick up your copy at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all reputable booksellers. And join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for listening. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join them each week on the Business of Government Hour and find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on the Federal News Network. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org.